Chapter 8 of Uganda's White Man of Work, a story of Alexander M. McKay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Uganda's White Man of Work, the story of Alexander McKay, by Sophia Lyon Foz. Chapter 8 The New Teaching Makes New Men. October the 8th, 1881, was a great day for the two English missionaries in Uganda. Mr. Litchfield and Mr. Pearson having been compelled to return to their homeland, Mr. Mackay and Mr. O'Flaherty were alone at the time in the mission. The day brought nothing unusual but a letter addressed to Mr. Mackay. The letter was short, very short, as it contained but two sentences. It was not beautifully written, for the writer had never had a lesson in penmanship, the pen used was a pointed piece of spear-grass, and the ink had been made from pot-soot and plantain-juice. None of us could have read it, for it was written in Luganda, yet it brought Mr. Mackay the best news he had heard since reaching Uganda. During all the three years he had spent in Mutesa's kingdom, not a single black man or woman in the country, as far as he knew, had showed that he truly wanted to be a Christian. This little letter, bringing the good news, was from one of Mackay's first pupils, a young man named Sembera. Buana, Master, Mackay, it read, Sembera has come with compliments and to give you the great news. Will you baptize him because he believes the words of Jesus Christ? Never afterwards was Sembera ashamed of being a Christian. Day by day he lived a sort of life which convinced everyone that he was true blue. Although only a slave boy, he was ever trying to persuade others to become Christians. Two years after his baptism, two young men whom he himself had won boldly acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Savior, and even his old slave master became a Christian later, because Sembera, his slave boy, had taught him of Jesus. About a month after Sembera's note came, another bit of important news reached the missionaries. A lame slave boy, named Damulaira, one of Mr. Flaherty's advanced pupils, was missing for some time from the daily reading class, and the missionaries did not know what the trouble could be. Later, when Mr. Flaherty was waiting in one of the courtyards of the palace, a lad stepped up and handed him a gospel, saying that Dumulira had asked that it be returned to the white man. His friend Dumulira, he said, was dead. He himself used to be a follower of the wizards, but now he no longer believed his old superstitions. To prove that he was honest, he showed Mr. O'Flaherty that he no longer carried any charm about his clothes. The change in the heathen lad had come about at a time when hundreds of Waganda were dying of the plague. When Dumulira was sick, he asked his heathen friend to go to the missionaries for medicine, but the heathen lad was afraid and would not go. All day long the sick boy read from the Gospel of Mark until his pains grew too intense to read longer, and soon afterwards he died. That day the heathen lad lost his faith in the evil spirits worshipped by the Waganda. Soon he, too, was one of the readers at the missionary school, and was taught more about the Christ who had made his friend's deathbed so sweet. About five months after Sembera's letter was received, the first five Christian Waganda, then living, were baptized by Mr. O'Flaherty. For this special service, the missionary's home was turned into a chapel. After the solemn and impressive ceremony of the morning was over, a bounteous dinner was served to about thirty lads and men, and a goodly number of women besides, Mr. Mackay being the chief cook for the occasion. It was a very happy as well as a solemn day, and others, too, 
began to think seriously of coming out boldly for Christ. The five young men who were baptized had all been pupils in the white men's school for a long time, and had repeatedly expressed their determination to be followers of Jesus. To make everyone feel that these young men were beginning a new life, they were given new names when baptized. Sambera was now called Sambera Mackay. Two of them had formerly been known by the name of the old wizard of the lake, Mukasa. One was now called Filippo, for Mr. O'Flaherty, who was called Filippo by the black men, and the other was named Eduardo. The fourth was called Henry Wright, for one of the missionary secretaries in England, and the fifth was named Jacobo, meaning Jacob. From this time on, the number of those who were earnestly seeking to learn how to follow the white man's religion steadily increased. Some walked three, four, and five hours to reach the missionary's home. One faithful chief was obliged to wade through a swamp up to his waist in going from his home to that of the missionaries. One day a chief came who said he had heard one morning at Baraza the discussions between Mr. O'Flaherty, the king, and the Arabs, and he wanted now to hear more of what the white men had to say. Mr. O'Flaherty gave the chief his evenings, teaching him to read the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, part of the New Testament, and certain other scripture verses. Occasionally he went to the chief's house to teach him. Calling one day at his hut, he was happily surprised to find the chief teaching his women or wives, some to say the alphabet, some to spell, and some to read the Lord's Prayer. One morning the man who had been the special wizard or priest for this chief came also to the missionary's home. Many regular pupils and visitors, together with other wizards and worshippers of spirits, were present. In the midst of the teaching, this priest arose and knelt at the feet of Mr. O'Flaherty. "'I will cast off these charms of the spirits, whom I will never again serve,' he cried. "'They are liars and cheats. I will follow Jesus and learn his ways.' On saying this, he cut off the valuable charms he carried about his person and took off his priest's robes and threw them all into the fire." Soon after this, the chief was ordered by the king to go to a distant part of the country. Having been away some months, he sent his converted priest back to the missionary house, several days' journey, to ask for a prayer book. It happened that when he arrived, another priest, richly robed and adorned with charms, was talking with Mr. Mackay. The heathen priest was describing his different kinds of charms. One he had to keep off lightning, one was to heal snake bites, and others were to heal various kinds of sicknesses. Mr. Mackay finally persuaded the man to allow him for a few minutes to have one of his most precious charms which he carried on his head. On handing it over to the missionary, the wizard cautioned Mr. Mackay not to place it on his head, lest some dreadful calamity should be sent upon him by the god. This was the very thing Mr. Mackay did, at the same time addressing the crowd of Waganda. Expecting to see Mackay smitten dead on the spot, some of the people were so frightened that they ran away. The wizard himself seemed interested and convinced of the folly of his belief. Then the converted wizard, stepping forward, boldly addressed the people. He told them how he had thrown all his charms and his priestly robes into the fire, for he had been led to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest of the true God. Those present were deeply moved, and they went away asking themselves, Is not the Christian's God the true God? These interesting and encouraging things were happening, while the Waganda, everywhere were living in a constant fear of death. The land was sorely stricken with the plague, much as Egypt was in the days of Moses. When this was at its worst, it seemed as though there was not a single house in Uganda where at least one had not died. 
The disease snatched several from the noble Christian band. Two of these victims, young men of the king's household, were expecting to be baptized in a few months. When smitten with the plague, however, they were treated as were all others, and carried off into the jungle and left to die. Some friend, learning of this, wrote a note to Mr. O'Flaherty, which read, Hasten to such a place in Rugaba, and bring with you some medicine, for your two friends are being carried away thither, smitten with the plague. Mr. O'Flaherty hastened to them, and found them alone in the deserted place, for those who had borne them to the jungle were afraid of being seized with the dread disease. There were a few words of cheer and a short prayer by the missionary. I shall never forget, wrote Mr. O'Flaherty, the look up to heaven by the first young man, Mukasa, and the words, among many others, to the effect that, although he was leaving an earthly palace, he was going to the palace in heaven, and turning to his friend, he said, Jesus our Savior is King. His hands were clasped in mine, but in a paroxysm of burning agony he released his grasp and passed away. Turning to my other friend, I found him already in the throes of death, but I felt his name was entered in the book of life in heaven. Another victim of the plague was Filippo Macasa, one of the first five baptized by the missionary. For a long time he had been Mr. Flaherty's personal friend and helper. In the religious services he became the leader in the singing and in the responsive Bible reading, and in the school he was made one of the regular teachers. Once, shortly after his baptism, he weakened under the tempting offer of his brother, a chief, who promised him a wife, the African's greatest desire, if Filippo Mukasa would only become his heathen priest. However, with his wife Sarah he soon returned to the missionaries, asking that both might be permitted to remain with them. At all other times Filippo was true to his God. Even before he was baptized, he had suffered persecution for the Bazungu's white men's religion. It was when Mutesa, because of his dream, had turned his court into a Mohammedan assembly. At the time, Filippo Mukasa was the janitor of the church within the palace enclosure where the chiefs began to go regularly to repeat Mohammedan prayers. Filippo Mukasa refused to join them, and said that the religion of Jesus which the white man taught was the only true religion. When his words were reported to the king, the brave young man was put in the stocks, and shortly after, he with another of the missionary's pupils was sent off bound into the country. On another occasion, after Filippo's return, Mr. O'Flaherty was too ill to attend court. The missionaries were being slandered by their enemies, who said that they were bribing people to get them to come to read, and that they were running away with the palace women. The king ordered every pupil found about the premises to be caught, when Filippo Mukasso came heroically to their rescue. He pleaded the missionaries' cause so ably at court that, instead of being murdered for his boldness as he expected, the king and Katakiro each gave him a present of cloth. Filippo's wife, Sarah, grew to be as noble a Christian as himself. When first brought to the missionary's home, she was a haughty savage who refused to touch the white men's food. Can a woman learn? she asked, when they tried to teach her. Soon, however, she became a good reader, and, more than that, a most helpful person about the place. One day she was even seen working in the garden with the other women. Sarah, asked the missionary, who told you to work? I thought you were above working. I cannot wash and sew like my white sisters in England, she answered. I wish I could, but I can prune and hoe, and the plantains which feed us require both. It is my duty to assist in feeding this great family. It was a sad night for her and all the Christians when Filippo Mukasa was smitten with the plague and died. His brothers came to take away the corpse, 
but the missionary and Sarah refused, saying that because they were Christians and Jesus was their elder brother, they were more closely related to Filippo Mukasa than his natural brothers. When his heathen relatives saw the fine grave the white men made and the beautiful bark cloth and the clean white linen in which they wrapped the dead body, they said, You have buried him a chief. We also wish to be your brothers. During the larger part of the year 1883, Mr. McKay was absent from Rubaga. He was trying to fit up a second vessel to take the place of the steam launch they had formerly used on Victoria Lake. His heart, however, was very much in Uganda, and he greatly wished to see these young Christians baptized and to help to train them for larger usefulness. One interesting young man, Mwira by name, who came while Mr. McKay was away, asked permission to stay with the missionaries. During the day, he worked for hours in the garden side by side with Mr. O'Flaherty, and at night he had scores of questions to ask as the missionaries tried to teach him of Christ. On returning to his home, he was given some Christian books. After several months' absence, he returned with his wife and babe, asking that his wife, too, might be taught to read. She had been with the missionaries only a day or two when she went to Mr. O'Flaherty and asked for a hoe that she might go and work in the garden and help to earn her own bread. The missionary objected, saying, Stay and learn. You are my guest. I'll feed you. How can I while you labor, she answered. No, you stay with us and teach us, and we will go and cultivate. Unlike most Waganda husbands and wives, Mwira and his wife loved each other. When baptized, they chose for themselves the name Johanna, John, and Miramu, Mary, from the Bible characters they especially respected. Before Mwira finally said goodbye to the missionaries, he attempted to describe how he felt as a Christian man. This is about what he said. I am like a man traveling in a mountainous country. He climbs and passes ridge after ridge with pleasure, but as he surmounts each, he looks before him to the heights beyond, each one loftier than those he has passed, and he becomes impatient and wonders to himself if he will ever surmount the last. But there is one great difference— the traveller in his desire hastens from the summit of one ridge to descend, that he may climb another height. Thence he hastens on till he climbs the last and the highest. Not so I. When I climb, I like to lie on the top and rest, and enjoy the others before me. Yes, I like to rest, and drink of the fountains that gush forth as I climb. Oh, the pleasures of reading and thinking upon these delightful books— and of meditating on the wonders of the Son of God becoming man to save men from evil spirits. So the number of Waganda Christians grew. Some were slaves, some were chiefs, some were officers of the king's household, and several were the king's own daughters. By October 1884, eighty-eight Waganda had been baptized. Black men, women, and children were being born again with new hearts, pure and white. End of chapter 8